Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I got a great question, a couple of uh, related questions to this notion of you know, women in philosophy. And I've discussed this briefly at the beginning of another lecture, but I thought it was definitely worth revisiting. And I want to expand it about a, a bit to women in philosophy and science and sort of the intellectual world in general. And I think um, having just done the lecture on Hannah Arendt, I think it's a good... Uh, place to start is with her conception of the of the three sort of spheres that we occupy at different times in different places. I'm simplifying a little bit because she's got a very complicated and nuanced version of this. Like all of her thinking, it's very nuanced and detailed. But essentially, she said we have a private sphere, which is spatially understood as the place, you know, we live in our houses, our apartments, um, are the place where we really are in control and, and we make the decisions. And it's up to us what's happening in those spaces. Then we have the political sphere, which is the legal structure, the, the, the government, legal, uh, very heavily controlled sort of classical, you know, as we think of the political sphere being the, the uh, rules under which we live, but also specifically the legal rules. And in between that, she put a third one in, which is sort of the public sphere. And this is where those two aspects of both of those interface. So there might not be a particular law that governs something, but it is a social rule or guideline that when we're in public, we behave in a certain way. And um, that is what's expected of people. And if you do that, you know, you'll get along better. If you don't do that, you pay a social cost. And so this, this sort of third sphere where the, the political system and our private system sort of overlap and you create this other sphere that is the public sphere. And so you have the, pri the political, the public, and the private. And I think when you start thinking about the place of women and in the intellectual history of mankind, you know, of humanity, um, what you see is, is barriers at every level. And I think it's important to think about that. So people say, oh, where are all the great women philosophers, where are all the great women scientists, you know, what's going on here? Um, and the answer is, well, for almost the entirety of human history, all three spheres have been stacked against women. And it's important to note that it is all three of them. So, for example, politically, um, for most of the world, most of the time, by far, and I mean, this is like, I don't know, 87% or something, it was actually illegal. There were legal strictures, so this would be political, against women receiving any sort of public education, an education that would have sort of any kind of recognition as you're recognized as a doctor or a lawyer or you know anything that granted state licensing, so that would be the political sphere, was um, women were just not allowed to participate. So that is a huge barrier to education. But much of education actually took place in the history of the world in private. So, right, people were educated in their homes. So this is for the wealthy or the pretty wealthy, relatively speaking to the population. Ah, and this is where that private sphere comes into importance. Because for pretty much the same amount of time in world history and everywhere, privately, it was held that women shouldn't be educated either. So, you know, you can look at ancient China and you go, well, you couldn't take, the, if you're a woman, you couldn't take the exams, right? So you couldn't become, you couldn't take the exams to become a 
scholar and to participate in the state bureaucracy. So basically, most of the time, families just didn't think it was worthwhile to educate their daughters at all. Even if you're a wealthy, super educated family, most of the time, I mean, there are exceptions, of course, you just didn't provide them the kind of education that would allow them to participate in the public world because legally they weren't allowed to participate in the public world. Now, even if a few families, which happened, um, said, you know what, we believe in education, we want to educate our daughters, or they had a particularly brilliant daughter, and they said, wow, we want her to, you know, be able to participate intellectually because she seems so bright, and, you know, this was quirky, right? This is just sort of an odd family who's decided to do that. Well, that's great. Now, she's not going to participate in the exams because that's just illegal, but even socially, there was no way for her to then enter the sort of um, non-professional social sphere. So maybe she could publish her poems, maybe not, right? There, not that it was illegal necessarily for a woman to publish, but it was just, you know, not done. And so socially and privately, even if somehow privately she was able to get a pretty um, um, advanced education relative to her time, there was no political, there was no legal way for her to participate and, and apply that intellect. And there was no social sphere, generally speaking, where she could go out and go, oh, I don't have recognition from the government or from legal codes, but I can participate in the world of the intellect socially. Um, and where you see exception to this, something like Heian Japan, where you get, you know, Lady Mirasaki, um, it's because you had this hugely well-educated, super elite class who were writing for each other. And so there was legally no way for them to participate in society. There was no private, there was a private pressure actually in this case to sort of be aesthetic, to be able to read and write poetry. But then there was no real social outlet for them outside of this incredibly rarefied uh, court environment. And so even when you do see these little moments where you go, oh, here's Lady Marisaki or here's Shoshonagon or you know, something like that, even then there was a very small window. But as soon as that window opens up even just a little bit, well, there you go. You, get, you know, in this example, two brilliant women um, from one incredibly tiny sample because there are so few super wealthy noble women in or, or super well-connected noble women in uh, the courts of Heian, Japan, which itself was not a large institution. So um, so you, could, you have these private strictures. If you could overcome that because your family was peculiar, well, then you still have the social and political structures that are against you. And that rolls basically through almost the entirety of human history, through almost every single society. Um, and when you start seeing exceptions to this, when you start seeing the female scientists, mathematicians, and philosophers, is when one or two of those spheres start to loosen up. So famously, when you see, again, noble women, generally this is where this starts from, in philosophy and literature and painting, really upper middle class, but generally it's the nobles who are first out of the gate because... Women have, were, were often, for instance, in France, get to gain a certain amount of independence because they had both monetary resources and a social freedom that said within noble social circles, it might be admirable for you to learn to read and write and be educated and will have a social 
not in the private. So you might be able to educate yourself privately because you have the means and resources and we're sort of loosening up on that. And then you have the social environment of visiting other nobles of courts or salons where now you have an, uh, a social environment to express yourself. But even and then, this, even as soon as that cracks open a little bit, well, then you start getting you know pretty impressive female writers and um, thinkers. But often, you know, what they had to resort to was using uh, men's names, right? This is what the famous. If you want to, you know, submit your mathematical works that you're doing, well, they didn't allow women to to attend uh, advanced mathematics classes. So that, again, that would be an actual legal stricture, and they didn't allow women to participate in and be members of professional societies, which at that time were sort of the core of any sort of advanced learning and study, tended to come out in Europe, at least, from professional societies. And so, you know, but but again, once they opened up a little bit, the private opens up a little bit, and then there's a, a small part of the public sphere that they can participate, boom, next thing you know, you're getting these really prominent female mathematicians and philosophers and thinkers and writers it's just immediately. It's just, you know, and when you consider the sample size of the number of women who are actually able to participate, given the, the necessary background, it's shocking how many there were that early, in a way. I mean, this is the, it's you know, other, think about it the other direction, when only you know, but it's got to be what half or quarter percent of women even have an environment in which they might, if they happen to be brilliant, be able to express themselves and immediately they start, you know, they show up. <clears throat> so then, of course, right around the you know, 1900, you know, just to pick a random date, um, <clears throat> things, you know, the legal structures in various countries and the social structures begin to loosen up. <clears throat> they begin to sort of uh, allow women to participate in increase, just again, just, just slight, it's just barely. So you start seeing, you know, some uh, women mathematicians, often whose, whose fathers have associations with university math departments or, or uh, are themselves sort of uh, engineers, help their, educate their daughters at home, find that their daughter is peculiarly brilliant. And so they say, oh, you know, so they're almost making a personal negotiation to allow their daughters to, you know, maybe attend an advanced mathematics seminar, but as an observer because they're not allowed to enroll in, say, the University of Berlin. Or, you know, so these sorts of exceptions, and as soon as these exceptions start to be able to build, what happens is you start to find brilliant women are there. I mean, they're starting to, to make the space. They're starting to uh, achieve and represent themselves. And again, considering the minuscule percentage of women who are able to even have that strange opportunity, uh, you know, it's remarkable the numbers start to appear. And so you fast forward to today, you know, now women are broadly represented everywhere. And yet people still say these these things like, where, where are the women philosophers? Where are the women scientists? Um, by and large, what this is, is sort of, uh, even if it's well-meaning, it's an appeal to ignorance, I would say, because what, what they're saying is, I don't, I haven't heard of them, but what you have to consider here is the, the necessary time lag. So, uh, if you're a famous, say, scientist, <clears throat> probably, let's just say you won the Nobel Prize, often, not invariably, scientists win their Nobel Prizes for work that they've done a decade 20, 30 years sometimes earlier. It takes a long time, often, not always, for the work to be recognized because it has to be proved and tested and the importance of it may not become clear until later. 
Um, and so, you know, you think the time lag. Okay, so if it takes 20 years, so you had to be doing your groundbreaking work in the year 2000 <clears throat> to probably have, you know, full recognition today. So if you go back to 2000 and say, okay, if you're an active, full uh, member of a scientific community in 2000, that probably means you are graduating, say, say you were 40 years old at that point. So that means you are getting your education 20 years earlier. So now you're 1980. And 1980, give or take, is the year that you really see um, uh, you know, this, this, you know, women becoming 50% or more of higher education institutions, all, all of the political restrictions are pretty much gone. Um, but it's not that far past that. That's the important thing to think about here. You know, it was, it was, you know, Yale, um, Stanford, Harvard, Princeton, a lot of these schools that we think of elite institutions had barriers to women participating. So again, this is the politically, you get the equal rights movement, you know, and so all a lot of legal barriers were dropped, but still a lot of colleges, um, many of which were private institutions. So okay, this now we're back to that public sphere. So even though it's legal for them to let women in, for the longest time they resisted it. And then when they did start letting women into these elite institutions, they let them in in small cadres. Um, and in, when they let them in in small cadres, they tended to try to funnel them to particular fields, right? And so even though you can go, oh, 50s and 60s, you know, equal rights is coming, the legal strictures are falling away, uh, but still the social strictures have not fallen, and certainly the private strictures haven't fallen away yet um, completely. And so it's really when you hit something like, oh, 1980 is when you get, you're starting to get that first generation of women who were gr gr raised privately in a community. So if they're born in 1960, so they're 20 when they're in 1980, well, their parents, if they're sort of even moderately progressive, are probably going, okay, yeah, we think it's cool for our daughters to sort of pursue higher education and do anything they want. Now, that's a change, historically speaking. And then the public sphere has sort of finally started to change and say, oh, yeah, we should give an equal amount of scholarships. We should open up all the programs to women. And then the legal sphere has, of course, most of the barriers have been dropped. Lots of the lawsuits have been argued out in courts and all that. But again, that doesn't really start rolling out and paying dividends until about 1980. So we're 40 years on from there. So it's really now that we should begin to see, which is, of course, exactly what's happening, um, the, so I guess you'd say the fruits of that harvest, where you start seeing the, the equal, uh, much, much more equal representation of women in the publications and the sciences and the arts and philosophy and every other place. But there's, a, there's just this incredible time lag, right? It's a generational project. It's not a project that takes place overnight because even if the legal barriers fall, you still have the public barriers and you have the private barriers. And those, you know, often take much longer because they're much more deeply ingrained into our behavioral patterns. One of the interesting things to me about this argument, um, oh, by the way, I should mention with philosophy, of course, the lag is even greater because it, you know, there are a few philosophers who have become famous-ish in their lifetimes, generally later in their lives. You, you know, there's a few exceptions of young, famous philosophers, but basically this is, 
you're an old person's game. Usually you're a dead person. By the time you get full recognition for the significance of your work, it generally takes a long time. So you can look at someone like Schopenhauer, who's basically very end of his life does he start beginning. He lived a long time. You know, so that takes a huge lag, um, you know, probably think 60 years, 50 years, 40 years, maybe 40 years from the time you begin doing significant work, often until you get recognition. Well, you might get institutional recognition, which is, say, a position in a, in a, in a university, very difficult to achieve um, and very rare. But as far as general, more, more broad uh, recognition in a community of, of people who are interested in these things, that time lag is going to be immense because it tends to be retroactive. Oh, now we look back and see the work that she was doing is important. Hard to tell at the time, you know, because philosophy is that kind of field. So the lag that you see in the sciences for recognition, not for work, by the way, but for recognition is even greater uh, in philosophy. So, um, but that brings us to, let's sort of say today, as it were. Um, and what's weird about this is you see this all over the place. You know, women need to be in the sciences. We need to, you know, women aren't in the sciences. And the, what's just wrong about this is it's just not true. I mean, this is, it's crazy to say this. Now there is variability. That's the interesting thing. But if you look at women in the sciences, what you find is women are overrepresented. There's more women than men in the life sciences. So biology, um, geology often, uh, health sciences like pre-med and nursing, wow, they're overrepresented um, by women. Um, and in, uh, I'm trying to think of some other chemistry, uh, biochemistry, right? And so these tend to have more women than men, in some cases, a lot more women than men. And what's interesting is the structure here, and some people say, oh, those are the softer sciences. Well, no, genetics is not a softer science, but it has a lot of women in it, right? So that kind of uh, rigor is there. But for some reason, women go more towards the sort of genetics side of rigor. Um, then if you look at something like the engineering fields, women tend to be underrepresented, in some cases, amazingly underrepresented. So... Um, you know, engineering, petroleum engineering, um, electrical engineering, these sorts of more uh, applied engineering fields seem, or not seem, they are by the numbers, amazingly underrepresented in women. And sort of in the core of this is if you look at something like the pure, you know, quote unquote, the pure subject like math, women are almost 50-50 of the bachelor's degrees. You know, it's close. I think it's 46-54. So something like, you know, give or take pretty close-ish to half of the degrees granted in mathematics go to women. And since I think there's a pretty clear consensus that the most difficult, rigorous subject you can take in higher education is mathematics. Serious mathematics is really, uh, you know, challenges the imagination and the mind. It's just a, a, a demanding field. And so when you see women getting, you know, close, pushing up towards half of those degrees, you go, right, so... You know, it's not an intellectual rigor issue. Um, something else is going on. And so this is where one begins to suspect it's that public element. So privately, clearly with the numbers of women going into science, there is, doesn't seem to be a lot of private barriers. A lot of people aren't sitting at home telling their daughters, look, you can't do um, you know, genetic engineering because there's so many women going into genetic engineering. So clearly there's some sort of private barrier that's fallen there. I'm sure that still happens. <clears throat> then 
if you look at the legal barriers, there's actually many structural uh, political impetuses to, to promote this, right? And, and there are, and certainly the, there are no laws left that try to discourage women from doing this. So, but this leaves the public sphere. And so this is where one begins to wonder what it is about the public um, nature, uh, which is to say the interface between, you know, hey, it's okay for women, it's, it's legal, and there doesn't seem to be any private, major private barriers to overcome for women to study electrical engineering, and yet they still don't go into electrical engineering. They go into math at a higher rate. They go into uh, chemistry at a much higher rate. So where it was a curious something, something is going on, right, that there's this uh, barrier or disincentive or strong incentive for men to go into it, right? Somehow, something, there's, there's a misfit there. But I think it's the exploration of those sorts of misfits that, you know, clarify where the barriers uh, and where the biases still exist. But it's simply incorrect to say that women aren't going into sciences and that women aren't doing well in sciences and that women are underrepresented in the sciences because it's an oversimplification that actually becomes a misrepresentation. So women are doing, of course, you know, remarkable work in just every possible field. And, you know, I, you, in today, if you look at it today, it's, it's just, you know, it's, it's amazing and remarkable and, and um, historically speaking, unprecedented. And so it's, I think it's important to acknowledge that and go, if you look back in time, the barriers were so high that it's very rare. But again, if you look any place where the barriers were dropped just a little bit, then you get brilliant women shining forth. Um, once you begin to reduce those barriers systematically, all three sets, and you need to reduce all three sets to some extent, then you really see women coming to the fore. But it's only been, you know, we're, we're talking, if you say 1950s is the year that we really start, 1960 maybe, that those barriers are really start pulling down both privately in the public and the political sphere, um, then it's only 60 years. So, so we're only moving into the second, maybe third generation of women, uh, I would say second, who've had that sort of opportunity. And so it's now that you would expect to see these growing numbers and growing representation and growing production or growing the fruit of, of harvesting the fruit of that genius that's been allowed to flourish. Um, and so when you hear things like this, so where are the women philosophers, where are the women scientists and mathematicians? One is, yeah, look at history, they're there. Two, yes, they've been underrepresented because look at the, you know, the barriers that they generally, you know, it's totally illegal for them to publish or get an education. That makes it hard to publish and get an education. Um, and then finally, you go, oh, how long has it been since those barriers have been systematically reduced? And by the way, this isn't just true in the sciences and philosophy, it's true everywhere. Um, you know, you think about, you know, the field, the artistic fields, you know, female uh, film directors, uh, uh, directors of companies, right? This is just taking a long time for these barriers. Again, some of them private, some of them political, which is to say legal and structural, but a lot of them just public, just that notion of we have these public structures that aren't totally legal and aren't totally private that create these uh, disincentives and barriers and subtle, um, um, you know, doors that can't be opened or become invisible to women. 
And but but again, it's only now that we're sort of systematically seeing those uh, dismantled, fall apart, and and of course, then the brilliance begins to shine forth. Last note on this: you're seeing uh, a divergence of this in the world. Some cultures are doing this very much more aggressively than other cultures, and I think what you're going to see, and I, I've, I've mentioned this before, is. Any society that has decided for whatever reason, you can think of the many Islamic societies, not all, by the way, um, are strongly, strongly uh, biased against women. They're not allowed to become educated. They're not allowed to take public positions. I mean, the list goes on and on. Um, what they're doing is they're just throwing away half of their best people, their most brilliant, most capable uh, minds. And in a world which is increasingly, and it doesn't seem like it's going to stop at any point, maybe it will, but increasingly... Uh, invested in intellectual property, creativity, scientific discover, discovery, uh, social innovation. The, your primary resource is the educated genius of your people in some way. Like this has become the super valuable resource. If you just want to think of it in geopolitical, you know, power ec economics terms, just, you know, forget all the ethics of it. Just who cares about ethics? Let's look at geopolitical power. And you go, wow, how far can you go as a country, as a society, as a culture, if you're throwing away half of your best resources and not allowing them to develop or flourish? Um, increasingly, I think the answer is you are not going to go very far, that this is uh, cultural, economic, political suicide, that it is you, you slowly, you just simply it's not sustainable. You just can't pitch half of your women or half of your culture and society, in this case women, um, and say, hey, your, your brilliance and genius, your capacities, your artistic creations, your innovations, your insights, we don't need those. Um, and it turns out, yeah, yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. And increasingly in a world where, again, intellectual property, creativity, uh, social insights, artistic uh, developments really matter. Um, wow. And, and I know people, like, let me finish again, just popped in my mind. Uh, you know, how much does creativity matter? How much does artistic insight matter? Well, think, look, look at a company like Disney. So Disney is, I don't know, you know, whatever, what is Disney? I have no idea what Disney is worth. But they've built Disney, uh, particularly over the last 20 years, on uh, this, um, this just brilliant production of, entertainment that people love writers directors artists uh camera people you know this this whole ecosystem of artistic cooperative uh to develop material for consumers all over the world this is an incredible just again pure economics forget anything else this is an incredibly valuable asset and this is why China right now is trying desperately to develop their own film industry. It's going not so great at times and pretty good at times. But, you know, they're struggling to figure this out because it is difficult. But, you know, if your country has no capacity to tap into these sorts of artistic um, contributions and these artistic, uh, creative, imaginative uh, uh, worlds that generate so much economic activity today— Again, this is a problem. This is a huge, uh, a huge challenge for your culture that's going to have to be addressed. The problem is you can only address it by freeing up the creative capacity of your brilliant minds, half of whom happen to be women. So 
when you think about or ponder uh, where are women in the past, just keep all of the barriers in mind, which were immense. Again, private barriers, public barriers, political legal barriers, and the how recent, I mean incredibly recent, the attempt to systematically dismantle them has been. Maybe one or two generations into this. So it's only now that you would really expect to see the full uh, fruits coming ripe of that uh, dedication to, to social equality and ethics. And sure enough, you're beginning to see, or, or we have seen, uh, the amazing uh, flowering, the amazing uh, return that you get on allowing you know people to express their full capacities. So women in philosophy and science. Thank you. <laughs>